Yo, what's up, y'all? Today we have a cool podcast with uh, CEO of Ellipsis Drive, Rosalie Vandermoss, and she's calling in from the Netherlands. We have a fun conversation just about what running a company is like in Europe, uh, about what it's like running a business, basically with her brother and uh, another co-founder of hers. And uh, we get into her customers, um, how she deals with investors, how she scales the team. Very interesting conversation uh, with a fantastic CEO. Learned a lot and uh, confident you guys will too. All right, see you guys on the other side. There's a big kickboxing tradition in the, in the Netherlands. Is that how you view it? No, de- definitely not. That's, I mean, I, I lived abroad for a while. And, and, and as you do, uh, you get the chance to sort of get to know your own culture because sometimes people feel like they, they don't have one quote unquote. Uh, it's not true at all. It's usually when you're outside of your own context, just start to notice that the, the culture is usually like very, very much ingrained into who you are and um, yeah, who you are as a nation. Um, but yeah, no, I, in general, I, I look at the Netherlands and, and I see like a small country with way too many people uh, having like nitty gritty rules for everything, but that do manage to, to live together very nicely regardless. Um, so it's, it's like, you know, with the, with the Norwegians and the Swedes that are like sort of historically known for being Vikings, but are now just all goody two shoes. I think the Netherlands is somewhat similar. That was, that's an insane marketing coup by the Nordic peoples. Like how did they like rebrand themselves as Vikings? I feel like that's a recent <laughs> thing, right? In the last 30 years. I don't know if like two generations ago, people thought of them as Vikings. I mean, I don't know. What's your impression of that? I think it's Hollywood <laughs> that just projected <laughs> yeah. that onto them. Like I, I know that like whenever you visit Denmark or Norway, you'll stumble across like a Viking museum within five minutes of exiting the airport. So it's it's very much like you know in, ingrained into their minds. And, and and for the Netherlands, you'll you'll run into museums that you know tell the history of you know shipping mostly. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, there's there's been a lot of you know. That's- like colonizing back in the back in the um like what we used to call the golden age like in the in the 1900s so it's, yeah it's just part of history um you stumble on it as soon as you enter a country yeah i mean every dominant civilization and culture colonizes i mean that's that's a human tradition right you want to expand the empire i mean okay so are the netherlands people are seafaring people i mean you mentioned sailing Mm-hmm. and uh, a tradition of shipping. Is that the case? I never, I, I didn't put two and two together there. Yeah, very much so. It's it's definitely a seafaring country. Like if, if you look at history, you sort of see that, you know, with in terms of colonization and I, I like it's, it's part of history. So you might as well talk about it. But in terms of colonization, you see that you yeah. know, the, the Spanish used to be first. Um, they sailed to the Indies and started like creating colonies there. Um, then the Dutch basically took over because we were very pragmatic. Like the Spanish mm. wanted to take these lands by force. Um, and the Dutch were like, mm. well, you know, just do whatever as long as you trade with us. Um, and that was like, you know, a, a better right. way of going about it. And then the British came and the, they again overtook, um, the Netherlands or the Dutch more like, cause the Netherlands didn't really exist in the, in the, in the 16th century. It was more of like, you know, city states and the like. And then, mm. The Netherlands or the Dutch basically held on to Indonesia and a number of their colonies for a good while and then actually way too long. Um, and yeah, so that's that's sort of the history of it. But yeah, definitely a lot of seafaring uh, going on. 
you know, it, it ages or it, it goes back to like the age where, where Dutch painters um, are known for, like Rembrandt and Van Gogh. They're, they're all from that same, that same, you know, 16th century, 17th century era. Is the Dutch national identity strong? Like, is there a strong sort of like Dutch identity or do people identify as mostly European? Mm, good question. I feel like if, if you ask Dutch people on the street, they'll find that they don't, they don't have a strong identity. But as I mentioned before, like as soon as you move outside of your own country, you notice that you very much do. So I think it's more ignorance and, and some level of, um, uh, of, of not really reflecting on, on who you are and, and, and how you relate to the people around you. I definitely do know that um, looking at yourself as a European is a Dutch thing. So people always consider themselves Dutch and European or an EU citizen uh. um, as a small country. Um, yeah, it is very important to have those like international relationships and we're very much Europe or Europe focused. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it's an, it's a really like strong point. Cause I remember I used to live in China. I lived in China for like a couple of years and coming back from China, I felt more American because like when I lived there, I realized like how much of the other I was, mm. you know, and uh, how foreign this, the, like the culture was to me personally. Yeah. That's interesting. I think travel does like, it just creates like a nice contrast. I think it's funny because I, I, I've lived in the US for a while. I have American colleagues and I have a bunch of American friends. And for them, it's it's a very common thing to say, like, yeah, America, we lack a culture. Like there's a bit of everything, but we don't really have an American culture. And it's like, that's so <laughs> not true. The American culture is so strong yep. and it may not have like centuries of history behind it or millennia of history, I should say, because it definitely has centuries of history behind it. But like it's, it is very strong uh, and it's very visible to anyone who's been out of that context for a while, but it's also a privilege to, to get to be out mm -hmm. of that context. So it's, it's not me judging. It's just observing. I think it's funny. No, it is true. Why do you think Americans do that? I think actually one of the reasons that I think that happens is, is because there is a strong, like, you know, history of migration. So, um, there's always this feel of like, yeah, where where are my roots? Where did I originally come from? What, what's my migration background? That makes people curious and that mm. makes them start to dig in um, and see, well, where they came from and and, and who their, their people are. Um, and that may also make them long for something that is like this, this consumable bit of culture um, based on, you know, where their yes. family hails from. And that may also make them feel yes. like they, they don't currently have one. Uh, whilst that's not true at all. And like, the funny thing is that I don't even know the name of my great grandfather. I have no clue where my family is from, but I've never had this sort of identity crisis that I wonder like, yeah, where am I from? It's like, doesn't really matter, does it? But if, if your country has such a strong migration history in which this narrative is very much carried by uh, current populations and still the migration stories that are going on, um, I feel it's much more present and, and you may sort of long for something that um, that you think you're missing whilst you're actually not really missing it. But yeah, it's, uh, mm. it's again, a perception thing. The U S is a country that's like built on immigration, you know, and, and it's interesting, like in the early days you could trace like all the English folks, they stayed in, I guess what's now called new England. And then all the Scots Irish went down to the South of the U S where, where we're headquartered. And you can, I mean, you see it in the sort of whiskey making tradition down here. Right. Uh, which is just interesting. So, yeah, I, 
it's also wild being like a first generation non-Anglo immigrant and still mm-hmm. considering yourself American. Um, you know, that I think maybe not so much, but has been like a uniquely American thing, you know, maybe for 50 years or so. So cool. Okay. Let's yeah. get to business. Cause I want to know about <laughs> your company and maybe a little bit about yourself for the audience. The audience is mostly technical. Yeah. So then, then I'm going to start off disappointing because I'm actually the least technical person out of our, our, our group of co-founders. Um, I'm the CEO and as such, <laughs> the least technical person there. So apologies for that. Um, but luckily, I have two co-founders. No, it's um, all good. <laughs> and I'll talk about them for a bit as well. Um, <laughs> but my own academic background is actually within um, environmental sciences and earth sciences. I set out to basically try and understand system earth. I was interested in everything from the soil to the waters to the skies and, and like a the biome that lives in and all in between. Um, but then I realized that in order to understand system earth, you actually also really need to understand people. Um, we have a huge impact on the earth as we all know. So I started to divulge into um, more social sciences like international politics, uh, innovation studies, um, uh, international development, etc. And it's been a great eye opener for me, actually. This was during my master's. And then with that, I felt like, okay, I, I sort of achieved the, the goal that I had at the start of my studies to better understand like, the world we live in, both the, the physical part of it and, and, and the social part of it. Um, but the moment I actually fell in love with the idea of entrepreneurship was when I uh, lived in Chicago. I worked for the, the, the Dutch consulate uh, there, and I was uh, tasked with, with um, mapping out the startup ecosystem there, which is pretty great. It's a, it's a really good spot to be a startup in. Um, so I, I needed to map that out, needed to understand it, see how we could build bridges between the U.S. and the Netherlands. Um, and that's where I realized that I didn't want to work for government whatsoever um, and will never again, um, even though, you know, <laughs> they're all great people. Uh, I wanted to be one of those startups. I thought, yeah, this this is what I want to do. This is great. Uh, but I didn't really do a techie study, did I? So I, I phoned up my brother who... Um, um, uh, a mathematical physicist uh, from this academic background and turned that into, as, as many other people do, uh, like data science and data engineering skills uh, in, his, in his early career. Um, and we also called in an old school friend of ours, uh, Ming Hai, who's our third co-founder, um, and he has done a computer science and has been working as a, as a developer for a while. So I figured between the three of us, we had like the hipster and the hustler and the hacker. <laughs> um, and, and, and we had like, you know, what you need for, for a startup. Um, and, and we got started basically going through a whole bunch of very bad ideas, and then they became increasingly less bad. Um, and at some point we we're like, yeah, this is, this is good enough. Uh, this is something that we can kick off with. Uh, so let's incorporate a company and, uh, and try to make this happen. And that's, that's when we could just got started with the three of us back in 2018 under the name Ellipsis Earth Intelligence, um, which wasn't Ellipsis Drive, but the name is already in there. So we were somewhat close and, uh, yeah, we, we went from there, but that's, uh, that's how we got started. Is that a Paul Graham reference, hipster, hacker, and hustler? Or- yeah, it, it's from somewhere. I definitely didn't make that up myself, but uh, it came to me in the moment. Yeah, because I feel like I remember reading that in in like an essay by the dude who founded uh, Y Combinator. But I, it's that's that's a cool designation. It's entirely possible that it came from him. Yeah, credit where credits due. Yeah, it's cool. I love the framing. So okay, so who's the? You're the hustler, I presume. Uh, yeah. Is that accurate? Yeah. Okay, nice. Yes, it is. is your- and I guess between my brother Daniel and Minghai, 
Um, it's mostly it's mostly Daniel who's the hipster, um, and he's basically the, <laughs> the, the, the the thought father of of the product that we've built. Like it primarily came out of his brain, and then Minghai is the hacker, is the guy who actually built it. Uh, without whom, it would have all just like you know tumbled tumbled like a cart house. Um, so yeah, it's uh, it's been a ride. That's cool. Okay, what's the Dutch conception of a hipster? Because there's like we have the Brooklyn hipster. You know, is that the same, like, in your mind? Um, I mean, yeah, you've been to Amsterdam. So as, as soon as you start walking <laughs> the streets here, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty in your face. You know, the dress, the, the music that they listen to, the coffee houses that, that are frequented. Um, but mm-hmm. I mean, in, in startup terms, it's, of course, mostly about, at least in the way that I understand it, mostly about like being right there on the edge of what's trending, um, like trend watching, knowing where, where things are going. And I'm definitely not that hip, uh, but when it comes to technology, we're we're, we're better at it. <laughs> like we all come to work in, in our company t-shirts and try not to worry too much about the way we look. Uh, but when in the tech industry, we're, we're doing well. I had a guy once a long time ago, like tell me that I needed to wear a suit to be taken seriously. Like this is the very early days of the company and you can see also how I dress. I don't really have suits. Um, and so, yeah, it's it's interesting. Like, I, I really do appreciate the performance-oriented uh, culture of our industry where you can kind of distress for comfort and execute. It's cool. Yeah. Um, cool. Okay. How's it like working with your brother, um, leading him? You know, is that... Uh... Yeah, so it's been great actually. We've we've been asked this question from very early on, um, and in the very early days, <laughs> people bet. people always saw it as like a liability. But by now, we've been working together so long that people realize it's actually a very stable thing, and it is. And we knew that when we got started. Like my brother and I, we differ like two, three years in age, but we've basically done like any project in our childhood together. Like we were very good as kids. Um, so we, we know that we can rely on each other. We know we're both like smart people. And, and I know that, you know, if I ask him to do something, he'll, he'll do whatever. And for me, it's the same, same goes for Ming Ai, by the way, like he's an incri- incredibly like great teammate, very reliable guy, um, that I trust with my life. So that, that makes it easy. Um, and well, in terms of like leading him, we all have our own corner in, in which we make decisions. Like I don't make, um, like highly technically oriented decisions. Like I need to understand like, why is this being, why is this decision being made or, or what are our business yeah. interests or what are our commercial interests? And then we talk about it and then we, we find out what the best solution is. So there's, there's hardly any like command that overrides someone else's opinion. Like that doesn't make any sense either. We very much consider yeah. everyone to have their own space in which they're the most knowledgeable person. So you always defer to their opinion in those spaces. Um, and Oftentimes there is this interaction that allows you to to land on the right answer, and I think um, seeing as uh, in the early days, but still to a degree right now, my brother and I basically had a joined um, product management role in which you're like, okay, so which direction should the product uh, develop into? I had the most direct feedback from the market. Um, he's always been directly involved in supporting clients. He obviously knows every in and out of the product, so he knows what's technically possible. Uh, he can set some boundaries like, yeah, I know that this would make it bloated. So there's, there's always like this, this, um, it's the string we're pulling to the left and to the right. And, and because there's so much trust, uh, we know that it will end up, you know, in a, in a happy middle. Um, so yeah, no, I wouldn't have, have it any other way. 
Um, I'm very thankful that I, I get to do this with uh, with people I inherently trust. So yeah, it's a uh, all good, I would say. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. And so, um, how do your parents feel about you guys working together? I'm sure they're stoked. <laughs> like that's such a cool story for them. Yeah, they are. They're they're very proud parents, very supportive parents too. Um, but yeah, no, they, they quite love it. And and when we got started, they, um, as opposed to you know investors and then people who were around us, didn't have any doubts that this would go that, that this yeah. would go well because they had so much experience with us doing like arts and crafts projects and then that kind of that that kind of stuff when we were kids that they were uh, that they were perfectly comfortable. That's sweet. You seem like super knowledgeable about leadership and management. Like how long have you guys been operating this business? A couple of years? Um, a little longer, actually. I think I think we're at about five years, uh, but we started wow. out as Ellipsis Earth Intelligence and we've done that for two years. And then we realized that we needed a strong pivot um, because the concept that we had at the time like didn't cut it for like a proper, highly scalable startup. So we, we went to Ellipsis Drive a couple of years in. Um, with almost a different business, really. So yeah, Ellipsis Drive has been around for for three years. That's cool. I mean, similar to our story, we started basically as like, you know, we built our whole business on Google Sheets and like, you know, off the shelf SaaS products, and then we basically built our own platform a couple of years in. And so, similar story, really. What did you do before starting this company? Um, you mentioned you used to work in government. Or- yeah. So I, I I held a couple of jobs. Uh, I basically started out like we we founded the company when I was still doing my master's, which was a two year program that in, in the end took me three years because I was doing this full time. I was just doing my master's like in the in the late in the late evening hours and the weekends. Um, but I always liked to work n- next to my studies. Um, sorry, what? I, I I always worked next to my studies, so I I did I did the job in government in, in Chicago for a while. Um, I also organized like live uh, programs and uh, panels and such in this very hipster place in Amsterdam that basically discusses like um, all sorts of social affairs. Uh, I, I like to focus on tech and big data um, in society, so those were like the live like sort of live journalism programs that I built back there. That was a lot of fun. I did that during my bachelor's. And um, held some other more startup-related jobs in the meantime, mostly you know, focusing on, on building ecosystem and such. But yeah, that's that's when I realized uh, I didn't want to do the facilitating bit. I very much wanted to do it myself. Uh, but yeah, all in all, I'd say yeah, that, so- that I started the business with, in aggregate, like two, three years of work experience. So you know, not that much. Pretty green. No, that that's so cool. Okay, so like, do you do you have like um, uh, advisors and? mentors and all that like how did you learn did you just learn by doing like because i i think it's like a non-intuitive position to be like hey i'm not going to command and control i'm going to just let people execute who are experts like it took me a long time to come to that realization so i'm just curious how you got there Hmm. so quickly (laughs) when i found out i wanted to start the business um i was about to go into my master so during that time you know we cycled through all those ideas that with time became better and better uh, at the time i also just took a bunch of like entrepreneurial classes which were great because that basically meant that i could build my business while getting credits um, and we enrolled ourselves into like the, the university uh, startup hub and accelerator program which in some ways that, that those can be kind of lame but also if i if i'm honest they're also very very helpful um 
because they they give you a lot of tools and sometimes they're a bit of open doors, but at the same time, sometimes you just need to hear those things and then it sticks somewhere in your head. You get to meet peers, you get to meet mentors, as you mentioned, um, and you have access to uh, investor networks, which is very valuable because mm. actually every fundraising, every funding round that we did was off the back of closing out some sort of accelerator program. So we got like a, an early pre-seed round when I was still in university uh, from that accelerator program that we did from a local angel here in the Netherlands. And then when we went through mm. Techstars with the the Ellipsis Drive concept, uh, we raised with the Promis Ventures. It's a US-based fund that has uh, an office in, in uh, Luxembourg as well. Um, and that was mm. thanks to like the acceleration and the network um, and the mentorship that you get there. So that that was very helpful. That was like a helpful you know, a bit of direction. Um, but in the end, it is definitely all about learning by doing, um, just getting out there and yeah. try things, um, like fail fast, as they say. Uh, but it's nice to have yeah. like the structure of, um, you know, a program or this, the, 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 the kindness of a peer network that is sort of, sort of there with you, even though in the end you, you got to do it with, with your own team and there's, no way around it. Like no one's going to put in the work except for you. That's also definitely something I've learned. <laughs> yeah. What what have been some lessons that have taught you that? I, I think whenever you talk to mentors and uh, board members and advisory board members and investors, and this is not to discredit them, but in the end, like they, they can give you advice. They can give you intros. They can give you some templates but in the end, like you have to do the stuff that actually makes mountains move. Um, and that's, that's, I think, important to realize. Like if, if you come across an investor that says like, yeah, we're, we're highly active investors and we're going to help you do all, all sorts of stuff, then I do believe that they think they mean it. But at the end of the day, um, you know, these things are, are also just up to the, up to the teams themselves. Um, that that's just something you notice. And I notice that as I talk to other founders, they very much recognize this, like, yeah, like, there, there can be an intent to be very active. Um, and, and to some degree, this, this can be true. Um, but like, don't ever think that anyone's going to pull as hard to make your, your business a success than yourself. Like you always need to be in the driver's seat. That's so true. I always feel like that after an accelerator or like a startup program, or even after like a round the value has like a J curve, like it actually drops like during and immediately after because you just spend all your time raising and talking and now managing these relationships. And then like a year or two later, you're like, ah, I'm actually really glad I did that because now we're seeing like yield on the investment, um, you know? So yeah, it's so true about their viewpoints too and their ability to help. How big is your team now, by the way? Uh, we're with 15 people, uh, plus some people that are like working remotely, spending um, like part of their week working with us. So it's a it's a good crew of people. Distributed all over the world, I assume. We started out that way because we were like basically accelerating our growth during COVID. Um, so I think we started out having like a small, like in person like core of the team here in the Netherlands. So with the, with the three co-founders and some very early employees, um, we're all on site. And then we started hiring pretty remote um, in that first like year of COVID. Uh, but then we def definitely did intend for them to slowly move towards the Netherlands as well. And this, at this point in time, there's actually 12 of us um, here in the Netherlands. So the majority has become in person as opposed to remote. Uh, so it's been sort of a, 
an organic movement during COVID. Like at some point, you know, you find yourself with with more space to move your person um, and you have more commitment from the people that are joining the team. You have more funds. You can move people over. You can arrange for visas, et cetera, et cetera. That's, that's a huge headache, by the way. But in the end, it works out. And then, um, yeah, now we have most of our people like uh, right here. I think I already know the answer to this question, but I'll ask anyway. What's your take on like a Zoom meeting versus an in-person meeting? Hmm. What's better for you? I mean, I think... Actually, the, the the answer very much depends on on who you're talking to. Like, I found most of my most of my uh, seed investors, I haven't met in person ever, and I don't mind it. Like, it's fine. Like, we we are perfectly able to connect uh, for our board meetings uh, over calls. We have Slack. We have uh, we have WhatsApp. We can call each other. Um, however, when you're working with your team like internally we find that you definitely do benefit from an in-person situation because you become more creative with that like we currently have like a 50 50 mm. um uh, in office policy like everyone l- likes to mm. be flexible and and uh, a lot of people like working from home but at the same time you notice that it's good to have a change of scenery that it's good to sort of be in office together and let things happen organically um so i do find that important for like our own internal team also, those who work remote, they have work that, you know, doesn't quite like it doesn't really hurt if you do that remote. But at the same time, we still fly them in to, to join us for a week or so uh, every every once in a while. So for for in t- team internal dynamics, I, I do highly value, you know, face to face contact with clients. I love the fact that like COVID was a thing and we can just have calls because it's so much faster. You can just spend a ridiculous amount trying to see people in face to face and find that it's not that useful. The exception being like some industries are so archaic that that face to face conversation is is important for them. But then you can also like, I don't know, is this really the space that we should focus on as a startup if it's that if it's that much behind? So, yeah, with investors, I find it perfectly fine to to primarily see people um, via Zoom, for example, or whatever calling mechanism you use. Um, for the team, I, I highly value um, direct conversations in person, also because you can get to know each other. You can have dinner, you know, have fun. Um, and then with clients, I, I really like that it's becoming, has become commonplace to just, you know, work together via Zoom uh, or whatever. Um, yeah. Much more time efficient. What's more taxing for you? Like a full day of in-person meetings? or a full day of virtual meetings, or are you an extrovert and find neither taxing? I, uh, I'm i not that much of an extrovert. I can pretend to be, but I think I'm more of an introvert. <laughs> I'm an, CEO's I'm an, curse. Yeah, I'm an undercover, I'm an undercover introvert. Um, I like in-person meetings. I, I find in-person meetings less, less taxing, I think, uh, but mostly because the... The virtual meetings are much more to the point. Like I like to have my meetings for half an hour uh, because then you're like, okay, we're here to do this thing. Let's get this thing done. And seeing as we're the startup, we're usually the ones that are pushing for an agenda. So you try to get something done within that half hour. Like you're on the spot, you're in the spotlight. You need to make sure shit happens. Um, So that's intense. So then you sign off that call. And if you have another one in which you're basically doing the same thing, it's all very high energy. Whereas when you're in person, um, there, t- there tends to be like a bit of a slower pace to it, um, which for that reason, I also don't quite like, like it's good to just, you know, focus on task, especially with clients, because then you're there to reach a certain goal. You're there to deliver, you know, some value. Um, whereas with 
with uh, in team meetings i'm not always all about like yeah guys let's have an uh, have a very efficient meeting because it's not always about that even though i'm also known to to you know, sort of be like okay guys what are what exactly are we talking about here and let's get let's get back to the point but that's that's not a hard rule uh, when it comes to you know team dynamics it's it's a bit different I love the like 15 or five minute like Zoom call, like, hey, what are we doing? Let's do this. Cool. See ya type of thing. I'm a huge fan of that. And that's why I love virtual. But yeah, if you have like 30 minute increments for six hours in a day, that's mm. it's just an observation that I have. And I'm curious if, if you've seen this too. I think actually sometimes running a less efficient meeting and like spending more time on like the stuff that is actually like functionally irrelevant to the task at hand is the thing that like lubricates the social relationship to ultimately make the agenda like uh be executed easier and do you feel like that so specifically you'd be like you spend 30 minutes talking about something five minutes talking about the thing that you want but the 30 minutes is what allows you to get the thing done in five minutes I don't know if you've had that same experience. I've had that experience in some cases. Yeah. So that, that you just notice that, that a potential client, which is currently just a relation, is just happy to talk about like some random stuff. I usually find that this is the case with somewhat <laughs> older people. Um, yeah. <laughs> that they're just like, oh, you know, let's do this and that. And you're like, oh, interesting. Yeah, I've had this experience. They just sort of go back and forth like that. And then there is like yeah. a relationship being built and trust being built. And then it's like, okay, well, we need to, we needed to have an agreement on this or that. Can we, can we move forward on this? Okay. Yeah. Let's, let's pick that up. So yeah, I, I've seen that happen. Um, at the same time, I've seen those same times as types of meetings also just derail. <laughs> being like, mm. right, this, this didn't go yes. too well. Um, yeah. So it, it can go either, it can go either way. Um, but in general, like, when I have a 30 minute meeting or a 20 minute meeting, like I, I have an agenda. Um, the way that the way I push that agenda isn't always, that that doesn't always come apparent in like a highly managed meeting. Sometimes indeed, like just chatting and then getting to the point at the very end can be the point of that agenda. So like, yeah, just, just because I'm there with a purpose, uh, doesn't, doesn't mean that like, um, a relationship needs to feel rushed. Yeah. I think it's the same for like when startups visit events, like in-person events, um, which I sometimes really don't like. And in some cases they can be effective, but it can also be a huge waste of time. But startups tend to make it not a waste of time because they go there and they're like, okay, these are the people I want to talk to. These are the investors I want to talk to. These are the points I want to make. This is my message during this panel. And then I'm out of there. Whereas a lot of like audience just goes there and sees like, okay, I'm, I'm going to be I'm, I'm going to go here and let myself be immersed in whatever I'm going to see. Um, but every touch point that they'll have with a startup is very much, you know, according to the agenda of that startup. Uh, so I think that's also just a, the, the difference between, you know, corporates um, and, and startups and in, in meetings <laughs> and in, in sort of their take on, on, on these in-person events that can be a giant waste of time if you don't make yourself, you know, have some sort of agenda or plan. Yeah, I, I, that's super interesting. How do you stay on task during like a conference or like there's a funnel, like the conference has an incentive to to make you do certain things. How do you stay like on on point for your specific company's agenda? I, I have quite a strong opinion on, on all the events that we have these days. Um, and, and one of the things that I'm always highly aware of is that you're the product 
of the events, as in their the events are basically like preying on you. I'm making air quotes for those who listen in Spotify. Uh, are basically preying on you to be there, to spend money, to to, to you know fill their rooms. Um, so I'm I'm always like hyper aware that um, you know they they always want that they always want to create this feeling of like FOMO that if you're not there you're going to miss out on something and and I just think that's a bunch of BS. Um, so I just care about who is there um, and how efficiently you can speak to people you're looking to meet. And in the case that you have um, like a strong uh, event strategy within your sales, like for example, there are a number of companies who need to have a huge presence in, in these events because they know that they're well attended by their market and they need to be very eye-catching, then it makes sense and then it's money well spent. But like as soon as you forget that, you know, the event itself wants to make you feel like like your time has been usefully spent, that, that's when you start making mistakes because you know they they want you to feel that way. They want you to feel like you're missing out if you're oh, not yeah. actually there. So it's it's just so important to realize why you're going, what your what your uh, what your goal is, uh, because just hanging around at an event like that is just, is pretty pointless, and that's that's where they get you. I find it so disruptive to my rhythm. Like you go there, you eat shitty food, drink, and like you don't sleep on time or work out. Like I, I actually I hate events, and like our fund that keeps pushing me, like you should go to more events, and I'm like, please, I will do it if you think it's a good idea, but I I tend to not think so. But I, yeah. but I'm always impressed when people go to events and get value. I'm like, how the fuck is that possible? <laughs> yeah, I I think I'm there with you, and and the experiences I had is like, yeah, if I look critically at what's been achieved and how this time could have been spent better to achieve something very similar, if not more, then it, it isn't it's just mostly disruptive. And then you get back and then your email is overflowing and you need to get back into your sleep rhythm. And like, nobody likes to work on an airplane. It's like, ugh. I don't know. I have to think more about it. Cause like certainly a lot of executives spend their time like traveling and going to events and stuff. And I'm like, these people are successful. So there has to be something that I'm not seeing, you know? Um, I don't know. Uh, maybe it's like, it's like, Ultimately, if you can set up the org in a way where the operations are running without your input, then it is actually very leveraged to go and build long-term relationships that you can then hand to like, you know, a potential sales team or revenue team to actually work. Yeah, I, I feel like I feel like it's useful after a certain point in scaling. Like I, I think you would have to be well within like your series. Uh, funding rounds uh, before before something like this isn't a waste of money and time or time and money in that particular order, I would say. Um, and once as a CEO, for example, you, you know, like 10% of the people that you'll be seeing at that event. Like I, I've been to events because I've been invited as a speaker where I see other people who are just like, Oh, here, and there you are. Like, uh, when do we see each other again? They've just been sort of conversing at these types of events for 10 years. And then that's valuable, but it's something that you need to grow into as a person, but also as a company. So I think it's, it's highly dependent yeah. on, on where you are. And as such, as a relatively early stage startup that hasn't reached like Series B, for example, yet, I think it's very easy to get caught up in thinking it's valuable, whereas you're just you're just wasting your time and money. And that doesn't mean that everyone there is wasting their time and money. They're just not you. So I guess most of your business is done then, I guess, talking to clients remotely, right? You guys are able to generate pipe and all that stuff totally remotely. That's cool. So who are some of your customers? So uh, we not, have a, not by name. You don't have to name. Yeah, that. Uh, like, we have. A, the, they're on our archetype. website, <laughs> but yeah, by by archetype, which is more okay, interesting fair. anyway, because <laughs> you just need to happen to know these these businesses, and 
it's likely that most listeners don't happen to know them. Uh, but yeah, so we started out within the uh, new space and earth observation space. So in that corner, we have a lot of uh, spatial data analytics companies that take in uh, raw spatial data, like a point cloud or a satellite image or a drone image mm. or building footprint information, you name it, uh, take all that information, push it through an analytics pipeline and push out certain um, information products. Um, that's that's a good chunk of our user base and we have a good synergy with them because we're a spatial data management solution. So yeah, as you can, you can make it really simple. Like we all know that a data scientist spends about 80% of their time wrangling data into shape and then 20% of their time making value. Uh, the same goes with with spatial data. So if you can help spatial data analytics companies automate uh, their data ingestion management and integration process, which is all overhead, um, so that they can focus their time and money on, um, or rather time and expertise on creating good analytics, then you have a good you know cooperation running there. So there's a bunch in that corner. Uh, we also have some government uh, users, um, and these government users uh, also need to manage spatial data, and their primary use case is um, exposing spatial data sets to the public. Uh, I'll name like the U.S. Geological Survey, who's not a client of ours yet, um, but it's a good example that, that most of the listeners will probably know. Uh, but where the U.S. has the U.S. Geological Survey, you also have the Ordnance Survey in the U.K., who is a client of ours, um, or PDK mm. within the Netherlands, who is also a client of ours. They're all like... Mm. That they all own these these national data sets that they need to expose to citizens, uh, to universities, to businesses to do their jobs with. Um, and that's also what we're doing because Ellipsis Drive basically makes it very easy to dump like ridiculously sized files into a data layer and, and have that properly exposed in a very interoperable way to end users. So it basically unburdens them from all the headache that comes along with you know properly exposing data sets to, to a large audience. Uh, so there's government use cases, and we also have um, use cases within the insurance space. Um, those are um, also related to the analytics space because insurance, especially um, PNC insurance, so property and casualty insurance, um, needs a lot of data about, uh, for example, climate risk, uh, portfolio exposure, et cetera, et cetera. So they're always interested in like fire hazards, um, earthquake hazards. Um, climate hazards, like all sorts of things that they need to use for, for modeling purposes. Uh, so there is also a high reliance on spatial data that needs to be managed somehow. Um, and again, needs to feed into the processes of data scientists and modelers and underwriters and claim specialists. So that's another one. Then you also have the world of asset management. Uh, like obviously, when you manage assets that are distributed through space, you also need to uh, manage the data about those there's some use cases in mobility, mm. some in agriculture. Like in the end, spatial data is huge, um, and it touches on a lot of different businesses. Uh, uh, civil engineering, civil engineering is another very important one that's, that's inherently spatial. Uh, but yeah, what they all have in common is that they use spatial data either internally or um, for their clients, uh, and that spatial data requires a spatial data management solution. And it's it's really as simple as that. So like. These are several different customer archetypes, and I bet that their needs at the product level are like slightly different, like not so different, but slightly, you know, how do you think about like, you know, what cohort to prioritize, what to go after? So you're right and wrong in saying like they'll, they'll all have like a slightly different need. The biggest one we've noticed is that like bigger enterprises, especially in insurance and real estate and finance, um, they need to have 
a solution deployed within their own network for security reasons. So we have mm. now, um, like if, if you go to the website and like get registered for an account with Ellipsis Drive to, to test things out, you'll always end up in a public version um, in a cloud that we manage. Mm. Um, but if you are an end user that prefers to use that system within their own network, we launch a private uh, version on like a single tenant. So that's that's one of the differences that actually exists. And we've been recently prioritizing mm. um, making those private deployments easier and easier and easier because monetization is a lot stronger. Like if you sell someone a, a private deployment, um, it's quite easy to ask six figures on a yearly basis for that. Whereas if you um, basically give someone um, a few hundred gigabytes in storage, like the Dropbox way, um, the, the fee for that is usually like 300 to 500 per month. So more like 3K, so like four figures um, a year. So that there's a huge difference there, of course. The sale cycle for an enterprise deal is is also much longer, but we found that um, at this point in um, in our development, the inflection towards building um, towards like a multi million uh, dollar revenue on a yearly basis will definitely be helped by these larger tickets that that these enterprise deals bring in. So that's that's how we've been prioritizing that, and within these enterprise deals, we've been prioritizing um, insurance and real estate uh, because. It is something that is relatively adjacent to the analytics customers that we've been servicing for a long time. So we understand the customer use mm. case and they're good markets to be focusing on. But the way in which you're wrong, though, is aside from that public and private difference, that that is stark. So I'll give you that. Um, the, the way in which you're wrong um, about like different clients needing different things is that the point of Ellipsis Drive is, is its interoperability. So the idea is that we, as opposed to a lot of other companies out there, very much anticipate and respect the fact that spatial data users all have different preferences and that we serve as all of them. Um, because that's the whole point, being able to say like, hey, I'm this and that persona and I like to use my spatial data via these endpoints. Then we're like, okay, great. So go ahead, use the endpoint. And your colleague who's a different persona or your client who's again a different persona can use the data via the endpoints that make sense for them. So because the interoperability is so baked into the value proposition, we don't have much problem sort of pivoting or servicing very different markets at the same time. Um, it's mm. a different story, though, when you look at a sales funnel and marketing and your messaging, et cetera, because, you know, you're obviously talking to an entirely different, like if you're talking to mobility sector, you're saying different things than when you're talking to insurance or when you're talking to government. But technology wise, mm. under the hood, it is exactly the same. And that's wonderful. Um, and mm. yeah, that, that's because it's so baked in, like the, the interoperability principle. Uh, but yeah, I mean, marketing cool. and sales wise, you still need to tell a different story. So it's not to make it sound easy. Um, but there's one benefit. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. And so like, do you guys have like a fully fledged sales team right now um, with different uh, focuses or more so just focused on the large enterprises full stop? Um, yeah. So we have like a pretty integrated sales and marketing team. Like in the end, it, it goes very much hand in hand in my view. Like when you, whenever you reach out to a new market, it will always be multi-channel. Like there'll be cold emailing, there, mm -hmm. there will be um, touch points, events, there will be LinkedIn, there will be campaigns running, um, warm intros if we can get them. And, and all of that sort of exists next to each other. And we found that that also very much strengthens each other. If you do all of it at the same time, then people are like faced with this wall of ellipsis drive that's coming at them all of a sudden and you're hard to ignore. Um, and that's, 
100% team effort. It's one of the most satisfying things I find is that, you know, the, the, the sales and marketing team, that's about eight people in total, um, just works well together in, you know, supporting that first brand awareness, then building of the problem, then reaching out and sort of stacking one stone on the, uh, onto another until you get to that initial meeting and you get the client to test that you can, you know, work towards conversion. Um, so yeah, we have a team that is uh, specialized along along those tasks. Um, that can also focus more on the public version of Ellipsis Drive or more on the enterprise version. And there's a certain vertical focus, and then there's a certain like marketing focus and where on the funnel do you sit? Uh, but in the end, it's a very interconnected um, team play, um, and I, I find it always very satisfying to see it happening. Oh yeah, it's cool to see the team run plays and execute. Yeah, that's that's so fun. What's the part of the business that like you personally like find the most intellectually gratifying? Is it the sort of rev gen side? Is it the product development side or just running the whole ship? It, it differs, honestly, from, from quarter to quarter, I would say, because the way that I see my role is, yeah, I mean, I run the company, but what that means every month is something else. Um, so I focus on whatever is necessary. I focus on the things that tend to not go well. Um, so I feel like I need to understand the problem better, see if we can get like pieces in, in place. Um, that's like problem solving is what I find most gratifying. And then once the problem is solved, seeing, seeing the team pick it up and, you know, really create an oiled machine for something that was previously a problem. I like that a lot. Um, and that can be something, mm. or that is something mm. different every quarter really. Um, but that's, that's part of like mm. the startup business. You Everyone wears a lot of different hats. You problem solve, you fix things um, in order to scale. And then you look back and go like, well, we did that quite nicely. And then you tackle the next problem that's, that's of course, there right around the corner. So 10 years ago, maybe 15 years ago, did you anticipate that you'd be like running a tech company? No, no. Actually, 15 years ago, I thought I would work for the United Nations or something like that. <laughs> I, I really thought for yeah. most of my youth, I, I thought I would work for government and then like quite some government in that. And then I realized that's, I'm, I'm too young for that. As in, you need to be a pretty old soul to, to survive there. Um, and I'm not, not yet. So uh, I'll, I'll be happy living in the startup <laughs> world for at least 20, 25 years. Yeah, it's funny. I, I, I sort of had the same thought. And funny enough, when I used to live in Shanghai, we did a deal with the Indian consulate in Shanghai for some automotive manufacturers that they were bringing into china and i and I, I wanted to also work in government and i was like dude it's just it's boring and it's slow and i'd rather start a business and i feel like also if you have business impact you can actually have more influence in policy than like working your way up the administrative chain mm -hmm. you know um uh, yeah that's I think you quickly realize that with like a couple of internships. Yeah, yeah <laughs> exactly. I, I think I've had very much the same revelation and experience there. It's, uh, yeah, here we are. All right, Rosalie. Well, where can people find you on the interwebs and find your company? <laughs> um, ellipsisdrive.com is, uh, is where you can find the company. Uh, but if you type out Ellipsis Drive in Google, you'll find a whole bunch of resources about the company, about me. Uh, we're all over socials and are always happy to hear from people and I'm always happy to dispense advice if someone feels like they can use it. Um, so yeah, feel free to reach out and have a look. 
Thanks for listening to the Frontier Podcast powered by Gun.io. We drop two episodes per week. So if you like this episode, be sure to subscribe on your platform of choice and come hang out with us again next week and bring all your internet friends. If you have questions or recommendations, just shoot us a Twitter DM at the Frontier Pod and we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to the Frontier Podcast, produced by Gun.io. We're the only freelancing platform where engineers actually go to hire other engineers. If you want to learn more about how to hire or freelance with us, head over to Gun.io and get in touch. Let us know you heard the podcast and we'll pay for your first 10 hours with a kick-ass engineer.